0: Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. Thank you for joining us for part two of this podcast as we continue to hear from Claire as she describes her experience of being trafficked. Once again, can I offer a disclaimer? Some of the content of our conversation may not be appropriate for all listeners, I would also ask you to pick a time and a place where you can listen to this in comfort, away from distraction. As I said in part one, she has never shared in this way before and I want to ensure we provide her with the respect, admiration and support that she so thoroughly deserves. So here it is, part two of my conversation with Claire. Where was that? Where did that take place? Was it in the place that you were staying or did you have to go somewhere for that to take place?
1: So a lot of it happened where at his place, so he would go out um, and, I, and I would work there in, in, the, in the room, in one of the rooms. Um, so guys would just come. Um, sometimes I would be taken to places as well. It could really depends so after that first time, he then took loads of different pictures of me and made me do lots of different poses or whatnot, not um, and was telling me that, you know, he needed this to make money um, that I was too fat so he couldn't feed me very much and um, because otherwise it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, to work uh, and it, it just, it just never stopped. Like, like, I always at the beginning i thought to myself well there can't be that many guys really that want to meet with me um so i kept telling myself you know it'll be just one maybe one a day for a week or something like that but it never got any less i mean it was so so many men i couldn't even count um and Some days it was just did not stop from morning and I'd be so tired. I just didn't even have the energy. I just didn't even care after a while. It was just. Yeah.
0: What was what was the reason this man gave? You spoke about him saying. You've got to do this for me if you don't do this for me, bad things will happen. You know what, what was his rationale for asking such a huge thing of you?
1: Said that he was really in trouble himself um, and that he needed money um, and that he, he couldn't earn it himself because obviously he wasn't a woman as he would have done it because it's easy money. And that he also felt that I owed him um for coming over and also the amount of time that he'd spent talking to me so yeah he he used to keep saying like how lucky i was to be there that other people would, would would like to be in that situation because at least i had a roof over my head um and it just felt like it was actually never going to end because every day was the same and he really he stopped talking to me a lot as well so i i, I stopped talking to anyone i didn't talk to the clients because i didn't want to really unless i, I had to i didn't talk to him unless i had to because I didn't want to upset him. I didn't look at people. He, you know, he told me not to look at him. And if I ever gave him eye contact, he'd become really angry, really upset and tell me to stop doing that. And I guess there's just there's certain moments that, that I guess stick in my mind a little bit more. Um, and there was this one guy that used to come and see me quite a lot. Um, and I really hated him. He was really, really sleazy guy. Um, but on this one occasion, he'd bought some cheese with him. And um, it was like a camembert circle, you know, those big massive cheeses, right? And he took it out of the bag and he was like, I bought you a camembert. And I was so hungry by this point, And I just, ate it um and he said to me he looked at me and he was like don't they feed you um and he was just like man don't they feed you and then looked at me and and carried on and he left and I was thinking well I didn't answer him um I wonder if this person is feeling worried or you know, would tell somebody. And then he came back next week. Um, and nothing, nothing changed. And it was at that point then that I really thought, no one really does care here. I could be here forever. I Can't see how I'll ever leave this situation. And if I did, he would just come after me. Yeah.
0: did did these men these customers ever inquire as to your circumstances did they know you were english did you think they they cared
1: they do i was english and they used, they used to say to me um you know it's really nice to come and see you because i know that at least you're not you're not being exploited you know some of these girls um lots of guys would say some of these girls um i hear you know not by their own free will, and I just used to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's bad, isn't it? It's really awful. And in my head, I was just thinking, oh, really do you really think that I would be here doing this, but yeah.
0: And that transaction that that would take place would the financial transaction would that take place between you and the customer or would it be entirely managed be with him? With him.
1: Yeah, with him. I never saw any of it.
0: And you never felt in any way that you could confide in in one of these customers and ask for help?
1: No, because he told me that. He knows that that's what people try and do, Um, asking customers. And don't you think that if they come into you, they obviously don't care about you? And that also he would be sending people to check to make sure that I wasn't telling people what was happening. So I just felt that I couldn't. And if any of them showed me any kindness, I didn't trust them. I would think that they definitely were were sent him in by him.
0: Do you have any idea what sort of money was, was
1: involved? So there used to be, so in the room, there was this hideous brown wardrobe, absolutely, I don't know why anyone would owned this scary looking thing. And he had a safe, In there, and uh, uh, over time, that safe became full of euros. The money was just piling up and piling up. Um, There was so much in there by the end. My passport was also in there as well. And he, he, he would just say to me, "You know, I dared once ask." for a day off um because it it was just I was so tired and the thought of doing it the next day I just thought if I could just have just one day just without anybody touching me would be okay I can I can get through another few months and then he said to me do you think that I can do that I can't afford to do that Um, you don't earn money anywhere you don't earn much money so if I just give you one person then what do we do we end up stuck then you you end up with nothing I end up with nothing Uh, you just work you have to work
0: and how did how long were you there for a
1: year pretty much so for a year It felt like a hundred.
0: <laughs> how did it how did it come to an end?
1: So I hadn't really planned it. Um I I remember after I'd been there for about ten months, I remember thinking to myself, nobody here, there is nobody he is not going to stop this. The, the clients are not going to stop this. How am I going to get out of this situation? I felt really scared about going outside. Um, I, I wasn't going out. If I did, I would go for a very short walk where he would hold me really tight. Um, I didn't know the language, I certainly didn't know the area or how how to get around. Um, But I also remember thinking, if I don't try, then I'll be here forever. And if I try and then he ends up killing me, that's fine, because I can't, I can't carry on with this. So I knew his routine on a Monday, without doubt, he always went out. Monday morning, I don't know what he did, between 8 and 11, he was always out. And I also over time, at first he, he was really careful about everything. So he would always lock the doors. He would make sure when he was in the safe that I wasn't near him. He, he was really careful, but over time he became less careful. Um, and I would just sit on the end of the bed and. When he was going into that safe, which he did most days because he was taking money out of it. Um, I would just sit at the end of the bed, which is where I, I sat most of the day. And he he I guess he got trusted me a little bit and thought that I wouldn't leave. And I, met, I memorized the safe number, which is still in my head now, as 96641. And he went out one morning and I thought i can't do i cannot i'm in so much pain i can barely walk i'm so hungry this is overwhelming feeling of being constantly hungry and i opened the safe and that he'd been gone for about 20 minutes and i opened the safe and i shut it again and i thought i can't do this this is just this is far too extreme um i need to just stay and i was just sitting there looking at this ugly wardrobe no I, I need to go and I was running between the window and the safe the window and the safe to try and see what was happening I thought no let's just do it just do it so I went in I got my passport and I opened my passport and I looked at my face and I thought oh my god it's my passport and there was lots of money in there and I felt I felt so guilty taking the money I thought I can't take much of this I need to just take just take a little bit um so I took a tiny bit of money and then I ran back to the window I thought right he's not there he's not there he's not coming this is this is quite a normal pattern for him and I put on this outfit right (sighs) this tiny like a working outfit so I really like vest vest top Thing and another bra or anything, and I just ran, and I had no idea where I was going. I really hadn't learned lots of the language. I, I'd learned language that would not help me getting around, um and I just it kept running. I mean, even thinking about it now, it feels so stressful that that moment um, of finding finding my way um to the airport, which I eventually did to catch a train. Didn't have the tickets, didn't didn't know how to buy a ticket in that country. Um got to the airport. I went to the um the canter and I said, I need I need to book a flight to the UK. Uh and she was like, okay, we've got a flight at this time. It was at 525. I was like, okay, fine, I'll take, I'll take it. And she just took my mini, check, my passport, and I was in the airport. And I went and I just sat in the toilet, um, and I didn't come out the toilet. I, like, I just need to sit here until the, you know, when they do the uh, final call. Um, and then I just sprinted out the bathroom, running through. And I was so embarrassed as well because I was just wearing this ridiculous outfit. Um, And then I just, I got through, I didn't have anything on me, I went through security really quickly. I was really scared, um, going to the passport control. I thought that he maybe would have told someone or somebody would have known something. But they just scanned, scanned it. And I remember the man, he looked at me a few times, kept looking up, kept looking down. And then was like, you going home? And I said, yeah. And I just went through. And I just sat on the plane. And I, as soon as the plane took off, I took my seatbelt off when you're not supposed to do that. And I got up and I just started walking up and down the plane. And this woman was like, you need to sit down. The boarding lady, you know, it's like, you need to sit down. Like, okay, sorry, sorry. Sit down. And I was just checking to see if he was on the plane or not. Um, But he wasn't. Yeah. And then, then I got to the UK. And I felt, I felt so relieved, but so scared at the same time. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do now? I, I don't live in this city where I'm landing. I have probably have nowhere to live. I should be a second year student by now. Um, certainly wouldn't be in halls, but what I told myself was there's, there's no way that nobody would have noticed that I'd been gone. There's just this just would that just won't be possible. Um, and then I got through to um, British through our immigration control and I just went through. No one said anything.
0: wow so what happened at that point when you're you've landed in the UK like what where do you even go from there did you alert anybody tell the tell the police or what was the next step
1: well I didn't have a phone so I didn't have anything on me and I also didn't have oh I had seven euros left um, which wasn't going to get me far in London. Um, and so the only place that I could think of going was was my old social services office. Um so that's where I went, uh, which was, again, hiding in the toilets for this time hiding from train staff because I didn't have a legit ticket to be on the train. And um, and and sitting on the train coming back to my hometown, and just thinking, oh, wh- what do I do? What do I do now? And how how do I explain what's happened? And I got there, and my person, thankfully, my personal advisor was there that day, um, and she came out to see me or took me in, and she was like, oh. Hello, it's so great to see you, aren't you? Why are you here? I thought you was at university? Like, how's uni going? It's really good to see you. And I I just burst out crying. Because it was at that point that I realised that nobody had noticed actually that I had gone at all. And I was thinking, I stood there in this really stupid outfit. It was absolutely covered in like bruises and I was really skinny. And I felt like nobody, nobody had noticed. And then when I tried to explain kind of what had happened, none of it made sense she just didn't understand um and i tried then i tried to talk to the police and i don't think they really understood either and then yeah they they housed me in another city Then.
0: so they put you up they found your accommodation in a in another yeah and what were those conversations Actually, like with, with with social service and the police? You say that they didn't they didn't understand you, or they didn't understand the situation, or or possibly believe you. What was it that they they didn't understand? Why why didn't they believe you? Why didn't this be? Why wasn't this investigated?
1: I couldn't stop crying. Um, at first, and every time. They would ask, you know, talk to me about what was happening. I just cried and cried. And I felt like I was just being completely interrogated and blamed. And I didn't know how to explain how I'd ended up in this situation because I felt really embarrassed that I'd met someone online and took up a flight just to meet him, Um, I felt really totally embarrassed about that. And uh, all the way back I was thinking, how am I going to explain that I went there by choice and then that happened. Yeah. And the police, they tried to I guess, question me. Um, but I found that whole experience really terrifying. Um, and they just kept, you know, the one guy would say, no, other people could be going through this, so you really need to tell us. And I just felt that I couldn't, because I just felt too scared for myself, that I couldn't really think of others. I'd What I wanted them to do was to help me to keep, safe from him i i wasn't interested in at that time in um you know helping others really i just wanted to to be safe and not have him come find me and i didn't trust that i didn't trust that they they would do that
0: do you know I mean, this is, how long ago was this This now? It's
1: gone seven years, seven years.
0: Do you know if this case has ever been properly investigated? Do you know whether this man has been arrested or had to face the consequences of this at all? No. How do you feel about that?
1: I have mixed feelings. Um I feel sorry that um he hasn't been investigated um, and I wish that he he would be, I guess brought to justice mm. for what happened. um but the other side of me, I feel that I could never or certainly not now, be in a position where I feel safe or have the trust in them to do that. Um, And and I really, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it over the years, but having been through the experience as a child as well, when when my, my dad was being investigated and I found that so horrendous as well. The thought of going through that again and possibly, you know, who knows what could happen? It just feels too stressful, too too much of a risk for me to take.
0: There will probably, well, not probably, there would definitely be police officers listening to this. I, most of my friends are still serving police works, police officers, as you know. Unfortunately, I also was spend some time in the police. <laughs> if you had this opportunity um, to tell them you have this opportunity to to remark on your experience with the police and how you were treated, how you were handled, how you were made to feel, what what would you suggest they did differently? What are there obvious things that they could do better?
1: um i i i think for the police their their agenda is they need to get the information so that they can go and um solve or fight the crime or um but to do that you have to have the trust of the person that you're talking to and i think to expect somebody to able to give a really clear, concise, detailed account on the first time you've met them. And, and then being asked so many questions, um, because I understand they're trying to get their clear information, but it doesn't feel like that, especially when you don't have any relationship with them. So I guess It would be, if you do want to get anywhere, um, supporting people that have gone through this, you have to take your time. You're not going to get all of the information in one, two hour interview. Um, And to, you know, I guess it's like with lots of jobs, but to them, you know, it is just another um case to deal with but if 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 you make the person feel like that they won't talk to you
0: i wonder if i could pose the same question regarding social services whether you would be able to take your experience of a child but also as a young adult and and today with what you know today how would you suggest they improve their response to people in in situations like the one you experienced
1: gosh <laughs> i'm sorry let me just think lost my trailer at four. thinking back to that blooming social worker um, my advice would be in terms of them not even realizing I was gone is don't assume that things are are perfect just because I haven't been in touch because I hadn't been in touch because actually I was missing and if if the university um, my um, advisor had spoken they would have been able to realize that I wasn't there Um, and then maybe someone would have realized that something was happening or that I wasn't where I was supposed to be especially as that was so unusual for me to not be in touch that wasn't normal I didn't go off the radar at all so to then suddenly disappear and hope that I would assume I was okay was not right and I think it's just the importance of having connections really I, I was so lonely and no one knew no one knew where I wasn't no one missed me, which meant that it was easy for me to be there. Yeah. And I guess that's what like this guy knew as well is that from everything I told him I pretty much told him everything before I went over. Um, I guess he knew that no one would be looking for me.
0: And you said this is seven years ago. Tell us, Claire, what, what is life like for you today?
1: Um, it's a lot better now. <laughs> um, when I first came back to the UK, I, I didn't go out at all. I almost just repeated my isolation. I just would sit in my room and i remember going to desco and i just started crying in the aisle because i suddenly had to make um buy some food for myself and the decisions were so big that so i couldn't make them i just thought i'd just rather not buy food um and i just left because i couldn't talk everything was just everything was a massive decision because I spent a year where he was Making all of the decisions for me. And then I suddenly had a whole lot of decisions to make for myself. Um so it took it took me a while. I I I reached out to Emily um, when I'd read this book that made sense to me because it was another uh, British person that had gone through it, and I really felt that I was the only person in the UK that had managed to get themselves into this silly situation. Um, and, you know, f- f- through meeting Emily, she she very quickly came to meet me, even though we lived really, really far away from each other at the time, um, and helped me to get back on track. I mean, I'd from that day when he told me not to look at anybody, I didn't look at anyone I I mean I'd known Emily for six months but I still couldn't tell you what she looked like um because I wasn't looking at her very occasionally I try and get a glimpse if she wasn't looking to see what she looked like but I just felt too scared and I felt so unconfident that people would be able to tell what had happened and um, I felt like it was written all over me that I'd been through this, so I didn't want to get to know anybody. Um, but with a lot of help, I then went back to university, um, a different university this time, um, and studied a different course, which was really, really good for me. Um, so I got through that and now working in social care, um, which, which is good.
0: I once again I'm going to have to stop you there clever being so so humble now I know because I've spoken to Emily that you didn't just get through university you you did rather well didn't you
1: <laughs> Yeah I did pretty well yeah
0: How did how did that work out for you what was the scores on the doors at the end of that period Yeah
1: so I got a first Come um, on Yeah so that was good that um, was top of my year, which was really um, a nice surprise, and um, and university was really good. And in that time, I met I met a really good friend actually, um, and we became and are still really close. Um, unfortunately, she became really sick as well, and so doing my degree while doing my dissertation was sat in a hospital on the hospital floor typing it up um, because my friend was diagnosed with cancer Um, but they're okay they're well now still got my degree which was really um really good yeah
0: why did you choose to study what you studied which was a degree in social care
1: yeah because I didn't want what happened to me to happen to other people. Um, and I felt like I could do a better job. I felt that I could, um, really listen to people and try and understand and, and, and support them in, you know, you have lots of bureaucracy and, you know, working in these, um, jobs. I think there's also you know little snippets where you can make a difference Um, and then I really felt that I could probably do that okay. Yeah.
0: I have every confidence that you do it extremely (laughs) extremely well. Thank you. Claire I'll ask you the, the the final question which I ask all guests we start with coffee and we end with with this one, which is what? What's your hope? What's your hope for the future?
1: It's. I uh, do my, my hope is a this point i know that it is happening oh, i don't know how to explain it i i hope that i don't uh,
0: it's not an easy question is it
1: it's not I, I i hope that that things will change for the better you know from the way that we identify people that are possibly vulnerable um, to the way that we support people that have then been exploited um, i hope that through that whole spectrum from the prevention side of things to the long-term support for people i hope that that will continue to improve and that the services will be there to a point you know, you can hope, can't you, that you won't really need them anymore.
0: <laughs> and what about for your life? What, what, what would you like to experience in your future?
1: Um, it's really, you know, when I think about the future now, I do feel quite hopeful and I never used to feel that I used to just hope that tomorrow never happened would not happen and now I feel quite excited um really like you know just to continue making good relationships with people continue working continue you know things that I like to do in my spare time running I just you know, every morning that I wake up, it doesn't matter how bad my day is. I just think at least I'm free. I think until you've had your freedom really taken away from you to the point where you can't even go to the toilet without permission, you, you don't realise all of the decisions and the freedom that we have is just amazing. It's so... It's so empowering. It can feel frightening at times, but it's also so good.
0: Yeah. I think that's a fantastic answer.
1: Thanks,
0: (laughs) Claire. I'm gonna I'm gonna close it at this point, but I do wanna I wanna say that, like I said to you on the phone the other day, I, I think you're amazing. I think you're absolutely incredible to have experienced what you have. To be able to do what you're doing now for a job, which is not an easy one, it's an incredibly taxing one, to do it well, but also to be able to articulate what you just have is no small feat at all. It's it's quite remarkable. And I'm, I have no doubt, it's funny, when you produce a podcast, you see these, you get numbers come back, right? So you get an idea of how many people have downloaded one episode and you get an idea of where in the world people are downloading, but that's it. You don't know who's listening, and you don't know how it's affected them. And every now, really, really encouraging and blessing, someone will say, "Hey, I listened to this the other day, and it made me think of this." Or, "Hey, I never knew this. I was listening to your podcast, and I found this out." And it's so encouraging to hear that. I know with absolute confidence that our chat today will do a great deal of good in ways we may never be able to see. We may never know about it—the ripple effect. But I know good will come from you so bravely sharing your story so huge huge thank you from me
1: oh thank you, <laughs> thank you.
0: i want to say a big thank you to emily chalk the founder of ella's making this podcast happen and of course a huge thank you to Claire for being so brave and sharing with us. I hope it was a good experience for her. It certainly was an incredibly moving and informative one for me. I think there are lots of learning points to take away from this. One of them is the importance of having a continuous joined up provision of care. She mentioned, didn't she, as a child going from one foster family to the next getting through high school and college and reaching university without any one person to consistently be there and know her and support her. She didn't have anyone looking out for her. So much so that such a terrible situation was allowed to happen. That is an appalling failure on our part. How can we have allowed this to have happened? What sort of gaps exist in our care system? That can allow for a 19 year old with no family in the picture and a history of sustained abuse to disappear from university and nobody ask any questions that is bad on the university's part and terrible on a social worker's part and it makes me angry i bet it does you too it was interesting that claire identified this because it was exactly the same point made by bex who we spoke to at the start of the year in episode six of this podcast where she shared with us her experience of growing up in and out of prison and how what changed for her was one person in the system who started to look out for her. I think as people we want to be known and if possible loved. I don't know where that ranks on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm sure love and belonging is on there somewhere. I also thought it was helpful to hear Claire recount her experience of being questioned and almost disbelieved by the police upon her return, to a point that she wanted to withdraw and disengage. The man who did this has not answered for his crime. He has not been held to account or seen justice for his despicable acts. We have to get better at the way we handle our victims. Christian Guy, who is the CEO of the NGO Justice and Care, was on our last podcast, and he spoke about the importance of working with victims in a more sensitive and supportive manner. This is one of the reasons why their Victim Navigator program has been so successful. I still remember the ABC of policing, accept nothing, believe nothing, challenge everything, an attitude instilled from years of being lied to, but not a helpful philosophy when dealing with frightened, vulnerable and traumatized individuals this also highlights the great work being done by the likes of Ella's and other similar charities who are willing to be there and go through the long road to recovery week on week month on month year on year seven years on it is clearly still hard for Claire to talk about hope for her present and her future but it was there it was there And what resilience she has shown to emerge from an experience like this and go on to graduate with a first class degree and hold on to a job in social work, helping other young people with their needs. Incredible. What did you learn from today's podcast? Feel free to contact me. I would love to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch through our social media channels or you can email me at Bryn at BlueBearCoffee.com. If you have heard this and you identify with Claire's story, perhaps something similar may have happened to you. If you feel strong enough, I would love to encourage you to reach out to Ellis. You can email them at referrals at ellis.org.uk. You can also call the Modern Slavery Helpline who will be able to signpost you for support. Their number is 0800121700. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. You can find out more about us at our website, bluebearcoffee.com. Speak to you soon. Peace.